Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Burning Bucks. Hello, and welcome to episode five of Burning Books, a podcast dedicated to discussing, celebrating, exploring, etc. Great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today, we're going to take a look at a book I read about before I read it, as well as the work and essay that first led me to it. The book itself is The End by Hans Erich Nossack, written in 1943 and published in 1948. And next to it, like the cabbage dish accompanying the potato entree, is the essay in which it was mentioned, Air War and Literature by W.G. Sebald, part of the collection on the Natural History of Destruction, published only a couple of years before Sebald's death in 1999. So, Nossack's little book, it's only 63 pages in the elegant University of Chicago edition, was originally titled Untergang, which is literally going under, although it's more often translated as decline. I think that the literal meaning going under says something, in fact says many things, that the end does not. I think it was Salman Rushdie who once upon a time said, against the lament that so much is lost in translation, that we can also find things in translation. And perhaps that's the case, but not this time. Unlike the seeming finality of the end, going under is more of a starting point. It brings in the question of what's beneath, points to a kind of hell, a place where sinners go. It sets up a moral universe around the central event, which was the Allies' firebombing of Hamburg in 1943, an event that Nossack happened to have witnessed. Going Under considers this event as something that occurs within a greater universe. Nossack starts the story by situating himself. I experienced the destruction of Hamburg as a spectator. Nossack was a spectator because after trying for months to get out of the city and eventually receiving his chance, partially through the bribe of a quarter pound of coffee, he happens to be staying in a cottage about 15 kilometers that's 9.3205 miles, south of Hamburg, beginning on Wednesday, July 21st. For a while, all's well, even if Nossack has some anxiety about leaving the city without accomplishing whatever it was he wanted to accomplish. This is a complaint that sounds less like a lament for lost time than a lament for time wasted. In other words, a writer's complaint. In any case, yes, all's well at the cottage south of Hamburg, even if there are a few odd characters hanging around the premises and not enough food and all the rest of it. Except that in these early pages, the future keeps on barging at the door, and some of these sounds, muffled though they are, come through. It was the first summer weather of the year, but with it came that heat that would contribute to the ruin of Hamburg, although later it was also of some help to the homeless refugees. The heath was just beginning to bloom. And this explains to some degree why the story dwells for what seems like an undue period of time on descriptions of the cottage, the surrounding heath, the pastimes Nossack undertakes, other ordinary things. We love the heath. Somehow we belong there. Perhaps we were born there ages ago. Others feel sick there and become melancholy. They cannot live without time, for the heath is without time. 
They don't want to know that we were born of a fairy tale and will become a fairy tale again. I have described this idol on the other side of the abyss so precisely because perhaps a way can be found leading back from there to the past we have lost. In other words, the cottage is the last bit of solid ground, of dependable land, another word with a lot of connotations, in light of what occurs next. Late on Saturday night, during Nossack's weekend at the cottage, he is woken up. Earlier, he had explained that, at 15 kilometers south of the city, you can only hear the air raid sirens when the wind is favorable. And by this point in the war, he'd gotten into the habit that many people, including my grandfather, had of sleeping through the sirens. If it was your time, it was your time. So went my grandfather's reasoning, at least as he explained it to us after the fact. But then, on that Saturday night, came a sound much louder than the sirens. I was about to give an irritated reply and turn over on my side when I heard it. I jumped out of bed and ran barefoot out of the house into this sound that hovered like an oppressive weight between the clear constellations and the dark earth, not here and not there, but everywhere in space. There was no escaping it. Clear constellations, dark earth, and the inescapable force expressed as a sound that exists everywhere between them. I point out these terms in part for later in the podcast when we turn to Sebald. But for now at least, these terms are of a piece with the going under that is the story of Hamburg. In reaching for these terms, nebulous terms, Nossack seems to be pointing to the still unfathomable dimensions of the event that he had just witnessed. He's reaching beyond the language he would regularly use. In one sense, at least, he's saying that what he saw wasn't something of this world. In the days after the bombing, which itself occurred over a period of days, or I should say nights, Nossack stays at the cottage, outside the city limits. Towards him streamed refugees from the city. At the time, they were unable to describe accurately what they saw. And though Nossack wrote this account months later, he found himself in the same thoroughly disoriented position, which is something he writes about. In those first days, it wasn't possible to get reliable information. The stories that were told were never accurate in their details. It was the same with me when I went there later on, and people asked me when I came back, is this and that house still there? Was the street hit too? And I was unable to give an answer, not even when I knew I must have been on that street and passed that house. One would have to have gone with the sole intention of searching for a certain address to say something accurate about it. And even then, one might have forgotten one's intention on the way. The very contradictoriness of their reports established the magnitude of the disaster beyond any doubt. The horror of it made it hard to take note of details. And Nossack revisits this point when he writes more generally about the effects of trauma a few pages on, how it fragments everything from what is seen to what can be communicated to the means of communication itself, our use of language, words, even gestures. This very public event, which on the one hand would seem to be shared, has in fact caused individuals to be confined to their own separate, in some cases, personal worlds. So it came to pass that people who lived together in the same house and ate at the same table breathed the air of completely separate worlds. They tried to reach out to each other, but their hands did not meet. Which of them, then, was blind? They spoke the same language, but what they meant by their words were entirely different realities. Which of them, then, was deaf? We have still found no way to translate this to each other. There are those who say by their actions, See, life goes on, despite everything. We hear it and nod, Yes, that's true. And then one of us will in turn try to explain himself, perhaps like this. Imagine closing your eyes for a second, and when you open them again, nothing is left of what was there before. 
Immediately, the one who is listening misunderstands it and thinks we are mourning for people we have lost and for things we must now do without, or else he will think we are talking about monetary value or middle-class comfort. He will try to console us by telling us that some things at least can be replaced. But that's not it at all. Eventually, Nossack returns to Hamburg. Against the river of people fleeing the city, holding suitcases or pushing strollers, he walks back to find out what happened to his home, his work, etc. Nossack, of course, takes note of the terrible state of physical ruin to which most of the city of Hamburg has been reduced. But his writing pays more attention to, for example, the older woman cleaning the inside of an apartment whose windows have been blown out, and the children raking the lawn in front of what was once, presumably, a family home. Nossack also finds a section of the city that remains intact, and with it the habits of its residents, who sit on their front porches drinking coffee. This most familiar of actions becomes for Nossack the most alien. As for Nossack's home itself, gone. Same, more or less, with his place of work. In a sense, Nossack's progress ends there, and from then on in the book, he doubles back, starts his reflection on the bombing, specifically the psychological effect it had on the witnesses, even those like Nossack, whose only connection was visual. He goes back a few times to the image of the abyss, the seemingly bottomless opening that has swallowed up the city. Once again, Nossack goes beyond the realm of the strictly descriptive. In a way, he addresses this, this going beyond the realm of the descriptive or actual, when he writes that he, and everyone who, in one way or another, was witness to the attacks, has been taken outside the world as they had previously known it. We no longer had any time at all. We were outside of time. Everything we did immediately lost its meaning. As soon as we eagerly followed some hopeful train of thought, a tenacious fog would envelop us, and we would sit back down by the side of the road, disheartened. This eventually leads Nossack to ask the question that, at one time or another, seems to befall any writer, the whole why bother question. It's a good question to ask any time, but it must have been a particularly difficult question for Nossack himself to face. Why write this book? What's the point? It's not going to bring anything back. Why not, instead, let oblivion swallow everything up? That's what Nossack is asking, and that's where W.G. Sebald comes in. So what can I say to introduce W.G. Sebald? Essayist of dreams? Not really, that'd be Sigmund Freud. Writer of dreamlike essays? Okay, maybe that's more like it. Uber-erudite storyteller? Historian of possible worlds within the actual world? Person whose name is actually pronounced Zebald. That last one was definitely on, but I'm going to anglicize it anyways. Toot me lied. The best compliment you can give to Sebald, to any writer, I think, if they deserve it, is that they cannot be fully described and absolutely cannot be compared to any other writer, to any other artist. Sebald's work is his own. Full stop. Be intrigued. While I haven't read every word that Sebald has written, as some have, I feel safe in saying that Sebald takes, as his major themes, the finding and losing and tracing of memories. In the essay Air War and Literature, the memories Sebald is looking at are those generally surrounding the bombardment of German cities in the later half of the war, and more specifically at the massively destructive air bombing of Hamburg, exactly the event Nossack has himself described in the end. To be even more specific, though, it's the memories and lack of memories that Sebald is looking at. The looking and looking away at the same time, as he puts it. 
The works produced by German authors after the war are often marked by a half-consciousness or false consciousness, designed to consolidate the extremely precarious position of those writers in a society that was morally almost entirely discredited. And that's because... To the overwhelming majority of the writers who stayed on in Germany under the Third Reich, the redefinition of their idea of themselves after 1945 was a more urgent business than depiction of the real conditions surrounding them. Seppold's main concern, then, is that an entire generation of writers, in their rush to, like the surrounding culture, reinvent themselves, has purposely missed or obscured a chunk, a giant chunk, although there probably isn't any other kind, of German history. The attack on, to quote Seppold's figures, 131 towns and cities, many of which were fully obliterated. Add to this what Seppold calls a second liquidation, the reconstruction of such towns and cities after the war, and that seemed to have definitely prohibited any look back. There was a tacit agreement, equally binding on everyone, that the true state of material and moral ruin in which the country found itself was not to be described. The darkest aspects of the final act of destruction, as experienced by the great majority of the German population, remained under a kind of taboo like a shameful family secret, a secret that perhaps could not even be privately acknowledged. It's the form of this tacit agreement, or maybe the better word is expression. It's the expressions of this tacit agreement. That is the subject of Sebel's essay. He acknowledges early on an existence of a literature of ruin, novels that looked at the destruction of German cities. But in his view, almost every one of these novels employs some kind of cliché, whether literally by using stock phrases, or more figuratively, by foregoing thinking for repeating what you think should be said at such and such a moment, as if that moment were no different than any other in the past. Anyone who has not read Martin Amos's absolutely amazing The War Against Cliché can A, go pick it up right now, and B, look at the foreword where he explains that a cliché is a form of used thinking. And like secondhand clothes, even the ones adorned with the prettifying labels of vintage, there is usually something about used that does not fit right. It's a compromise, and that's the problem. A lot of people yak on about aesthetics and ethics, and in the world of architecture, where I spent some time, this is especially true. It's as if the beautiful, or what is accepted as the beautiful, can somehow be good. Seppold's central point, however, is a legitimate and thoughtful link between ethics and aesthetics. What he says is that we cannot use cliches, old thinking, to describe new events. That if we succumb to these beautiful and comfortable stock phrases, we are looking away from, rather than towards, our purported subject. Into the sad, sad place where German writers either ignore the world around them, as many had done during the war, or look at the world around them through warped lenses, steps Nossack, one of only two writers, the other is Heinrich Böhl, whom Sebald holds up as an example. Why Nossack? Well, there's one main reason, according to Sebald, and that is because Nossack writes realism, that is to say, objective descriptions of reality. Here's W.G. The ideal of truth inherent in its entirely unpretentious objectivity, at least over long passages, proves itself the only legitimate reason for continuing to produce literature in the face of total destruction. Conversely, the construction of aesthetic or pseudo-aesthetic effects from the ruins of an annihilated world is a process depriving literature of its right to exist. Because Seville doesn't really do three-word sentences, and now that I think of it probably has never written a one-word paragraph, it might be good to take another look at that idea. The ideal of truth in its entirely unpretentious objectivity. Whoa, whoa, slow down, partner. What is this shared notion of truth he's on about? What single ideal is he referring to, and where can I get it? 
More meaty, though, is part two, the swipe at anything other than objectivity as being pretentious, that is, false, and underlying that, the idea that objectivity is something that actually exists. Pardon me, but objectivity? Didn't Descartes deal with that? Didn't Freud? Just sounds naive when Sevold says things like this, all the more so when he assumes it's fair to build an argument on something like this, the argument being that writing objectively is the only legitimate reason for continuing to produce literature in the face of total destruction. After that, he goes on to say that when you depart from objective observation, the only place to go is the realm of pseudo-aesthetic effects from the ruins of an annihilated world, and that the use of such shoddy effects is grounds for depriving literature of the right to exist. Harsh. And I get where Sevold's coming from. The essay provides plenty of examples of bad thinking and worse writing, novels that make use of fairy tales and fascist pseudo-thought to tell a story that has nothing to do with either. But it's equally fair to criticize Sevold for extolling the, quote, documentary style, unquote, as if there were no other way to write truthfully about the world, and to say that anything that deviates from objectivity is cause for just packing up the endeavor of literature. What a thoroughly boring world we'd live in if that were the case. I mean, does anybody actually like Italian neorealist cinema? And also, while Sevold is generally correct, he's not absolutely correct. And it's bad to make generalizations, and worse to make absolutes. I mean... Speaking of pseudo-fascist thinking, there's something about Sebald's argument that does not take into account what trauma does. Sebald doesn't allow for the fact that it can take a long time, sometimes generations, for a culture to begin to contend directly with its own traumas. He also doesn't allow for the fact that traumas, traumas like the bombing of Hamburg, destroyed alongside buildings and lives, our ability to understand the world, to understand and to put our words into some kind of understandable order. Realism or any kind of objective view of reality, is also a victim of trauma. Moreover, Sevold does not note that even Nossack, his example of how trauma should, that terrible word again, should be written, travels beyond the realms of documentary style. Nossack did this with his vision of the world as one of heaven and hell, and he does this more directly at the end of the book, when Nossack, as the narrator, has a conversation with time. And that's not a Mr. Time or the clock tower in the village square. It's the metaphysical time, the one on which all the philosophers expend so much energy. Dear poor time, why are you so upset? We will gladly do whatever you want if it makes you happy and keeps you from getting angry. You're not to keep going to that stranger, says time. I'm going to lock you up. Oh, mother, why not? He'll spoil you, and you won't amount to anything in life. Mother, you don't know him. He knows such beautiful games. He lives over there, where there are no more houses. Every afternoon he comes through the old archway. He is our friend. We always ask him to take us to where he lives. But he doesn't want to. Not yet. He says, just wait a while, children. Wouldn't you like to meet him too, mother? No. And you're staying here now. He's not proper company for you. Lots of ways to interpret that bit, that the stranger could be the events of the past, the bombing of Hamburg, for instance. But the main point is that the word mother is used, and Nosek is definitely not talking about his own mother. In other words, he's gone for a walk, and I'm here to say, that's okay. Go for a walk, Hans-Eric Nosek. And as for W.G., his understandable motivations aside, it's strange for a writer of his thoughtfulness to say that Nosek's walk is not okay. It's really strange. Seriousness, making important arguments, does strange things to people, though. Bottom line, WG, you can't rein in art. Art does what it wants. We can always critique it, but creating rules for it, that's kind of beneath the sevold that I know and respect. Well, know and respect as a reader.
In looking back at this double dose of Hans-Erik Nossack and W.G. Sebald, I'll say The End is an excellently written book. At the same time, it is a bloodless book, by which I mean a book of the head and not the heart. That's got to be one reason Sebald liked The End, and it's not a strike or a complaint to say that this is a work that operates almost entirely on the intellectual level. But it does leave a part of the reader unaddressed. Maybe you need both head and heart to tell this story, the obliteration of an entire city, one of many that were erased almost wholesale during the war. At the same time, there are plenty of books about historical large-scale trauma that are all emotion, stories that come on strong and leave very few traces. The End, on the other hand, is a book that is even throughout, even in its afterglow. As to the question that Nossack asked, why? Why bother writing this book? Why bother writing it all? A sort of cry that W.H. Auden rephrased as, poetry makes nothing happen. Sebald's answer seems to be, because not writing is equivalent to ignoring. And while you can argue against that statement, it's hard to dispute its truth. And that's the end, small t, small e, of this podcast. Thank you for listening. Next up will be an interview with Josh Cohen, author of the recently released The Private Life. In the meantime, please feel free to send me notes, nasty and nice, either via Twitter, at burningbookspod, or email. The address is burningbookspod at gmail.com. My thanks to Hakan Osgon for the music. And as always, go Jays. Everybody, this is Nesto Milo from Argentina. You're enjoying Radio Litopia. I hope you enjoy also my books, uh, Sweet Money from Bitter Lemon Press.